The Rookie is a free serialized audiobook meant for mature audiences. Written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. For links to order a young adult version of this book without all the cussing, in print, ebook, or audiobook, visit scottsigler.com slash the rookie one word. This podcast contains mature situations, adult language, and lots and lots of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, junkies. If you listen to only one intro, for this episodic podcast novel, make it this intro. Listen to the whole thing. Well, this has been a long time coming. It's the original rookie, the adult version, with all the swear words. I first released this back in 2007. The audio quality is good, but not at the level I record things these days, so keep that in mind, but you will get used to it quickly. This is the original version that the iTunes store censored for foul language. Yes, that really happened. Yes, for just the language and nothing else. That led to an Apple employee who used to be a high school English teacher suggesting we ditch the cursing because there weren't any books like The Rookie when she was a teacher. She thought it would be a great book that might help athletically inclined students to develop a love for reading. So we created the YA version that is available in print, ebook, and as an audiobook on audible.com and other sites. And the YA version is also available as a free serialized podcast. Pick your format, you do you. Because we had the YA version, we pulled the adult version. But after 15 years, here it is again. I would not recommend listening to this with young children unless they have a very seasoned palate for cursing. Other than the harsh language, it's basically the same story as the YA version. Well, here we go. We hope you dig the rookie adult version. Enjoy. The Rookie by Scott Sigler. Book one, the PNFL. Chapter one, talent show. Semifinals of the Purest Nation Football League, the PNFL. Outland Fleet Corsairs, 7-2, at the Mining Colony 6 Raiders, 9-0. McCovey Memorial Stadium, 7.25 p.m. Purest Nation Standard Time. Coverage, Holocast on Channel 15 Promised Land Sports Network. And Translate Radio, 645.6 TL, The Fan. Third and seven on the defense's 41-yard line. McCovey's three tiny moons hung in the evening sky like pitted purple grapes. Their reflected light diffused into the night's mist, making them glow with a fuzzy magnificence. Smells of human sweat, iron-rich mud, and the saltwater-like odor of carsenji grass filled the frigid air. The endless hum of the atmosphere processor echoed through the pack stands, but the players, and the crowd, had long since tuned out that ever-present droning. Quentin Barnes slowly walked up behind center, head sweeping from left to right as he took in every detail of the defense. Well, some would call it a walk. Most would call it a swagger. A step left, a half-bounce left. A step right, a half-bounce right. He stood behind the center, his hands tapping out a quick left-right-left bada-bap on the center's ample ass. From his crouch, the center smiled. 
The bet a bap was the kind of thing other players would tease you for. That is, unless your quarterback was Quentin Barnes. The center smiled because Quentin's only did that, did the bet a bap, when he saw a hole in the defense. And what Quentin saw, Quentin took. Behind Quentin, the tailback and the fullback lined up in an I formation. Two wide receivers lined up on the left side, with a tight end on the right, Red 15! Red 15! Quentin's gravel and sandpaper voice barked out the audible. His breath shot out in a growing white cloud, which seemed to break into slow motion as the crystallized vapor rose almost imperceptibly into the windless night. Across the offensive and defensive lines, similar start-stop breaths filled the air like a thin fog of war. Each puff illuminated by the powerful field lights. On defense, the Corsair's outside linebacker pointed to the tight end. Watch that fucker! The tight end had caught six passes on the day, four of them in third-down situations, racking up 52 yards and a touchdown. And it wasn't even halfway through the third quarter. The linebacker's jersey, once blazing white with royal blue numbers, was now a torn mess of brown streaks, green smears, and splotches of red fading to pink. The linebacker moved to line up directly over the tight end. From his stance, the tight end smiled. Now he saw it. Now he saw the same thing Quentin had seen almost the second they broke from the huddle. Hot, hot, hot! The center snapped the ball into Quentin's wide hands. The linemen launched into their endless battle. Huge cleated shoes kicking up clods of tortured grass and well-worked mud. Quentin dropped straight back as the fullback and tailback moved to the left and to the right, respectively, ready to block. The tight end shot off the line, big legs pumping and big arms swinging. The linebacker backpedaled, eyes wide and angry. He wasn't going to let the tight end beat him this time. The linebacker watched Quentin's eyes as they locked onto the tight end. The tight end stepped to the right like he was breaking outside, his head looking up and his shoulders turning out in an exaggerated move before he cut sharply left to the inside and curled up at eight yards from the line of scrimmage. Quentin's left arm reared back. The linebacker snarled as he jumped the route. It was payback time, an easy interception. Quentin's arm came forward as the linebacker closed on the tight end but the ball never left the quarterback's hand. Pump fake. Quentin reared back, lightning fast, and loft a smooth, arcing pass. The linebacker leapt, but the ball sailed just a few inches over his outstretched fingers to fall perfectly into the arms of the sprinting tailback, who had come out of the backfield on a delayed pattern. The tailback turned up field, never breaking stride. The tailback threw a head-and-shoulders juke on the free safety who couldn't change direction quickly enough to catch the streaking runner. The tailback cut to the right, towards the sidelines, and turned on the Jets. The strong safety had a good angle of pursuit, but there just wasn't enough field to catch up. The tailback strode into the dirty end zone, standing up. The record crowd of 15,162 roared its approval. McCovey Raiders, 34. Purist Nation Outland Fleet Corsairs. Three.
Quentin Barnes reached down and plucked a few blades of the tough Carsenji grass from the muddy, cleat-torn field, then held them to his nose. He breathed deeply, smiled, then rolled his fingers, feeling the grass's rough texture before the blades scattered to the ground. Smiles seemed limitless that day, particularly to the players and fans of the Black and Silver Mining Colony 6 Raiders. And for Stedmar Osborne, the Raiders' owner, the smile was so big it looked almost painful. He sat behind the smoke glass of his luxury box, enjoying an illegal Jack Daniels on the rocks and smoking an illegal Tower Republic cigar. Normally, he was down on the field, as any young owner should be. But this week he was entertaining a visitor, a quith leader, forbidden both because of his rap sheet and his species. Not that it was illegal for any species other than humans to stand on Purist Nation soil. But out here in the fringe colonies, such things were often ignored if you had enough influence. What did I tell you, Shamakath? Stedmar respectfully used the word Shamakath, the quith word for leader. His guest, Greedock the Splithead, nodded quickly, his three sets of foot-long black antenna bobbing like dreadlocks. Greedock had to look up. He was tall for a quith leader, but at three foot two inches, he was exactly half Stedmar's height. Out of all the galaxy's known species, humans and quith shared the most similar body plan. Most similar, which was actually not very similar at all. Both species had evolved from primitive quadrupeds into bipeds, giving them two legs and two arms. From that point on, however, any similarity broke down. The average human stood at twice the height of an average quith leader and weighed three times as much. The quith leader's body looked as if a sculptor had taken a human child's arms and moved them down to just above the hips. Both arms and legs ended in three pinchered claws, which provided solid footing but were incapable of manipulating any tool. The proximity of legs and arms meant the quith could move with equal ease as a biped or a quadruped, although no respecting quith leader would ever be caught walking on all fours. Such behavior was fine for the warriors and the workers, but never for a leader. The trunk continued up from the arms, a long, smooth, furry body that ended in a head dominated by one softball-sized eye. A small, vertical mouth sat under that eye. A set of pedipalps extended from the sides of the quith's vertical mouth. What were once tools for killing and eating had evolved into long, dexterous appendages the quith used like human hands. I don't know why he hasn't thrown deep anymore. With that kid's arms, they should be going for the bomb every play, you know? Greedock looked back at the field and rolled his one eye, marveling in Stedmar's idiocy. Greedock caught himself in the act, then stared straight ahead. Rolling one's eye was an expression of derision he'd picked up from hanging around humans for far too long. Any neophyte could see that the quarterback had been setting up that play for at least the last two offensive series. Greedock looked to his left, at Hokor the hook chest, also a quith leader. Hokor had forgotten more about football than Greedock would ever know. Hokor's single eye glowed slightly yellow with an internal light. The tips of his three sets of flexible, foot-long antennas spun in tiny circles, and there was nothing human about that expression. Hokor's stubby legs were the only things that stayed still. 
his tan-striped yellow fur raised and lowered with subconscious excitement. His tiny three-pincered hands flexed involuntarily, and his pedipalps twitched, as if they were searching for food to stuff into his small mouth. Greedock reached over and gently nudged Hokor. Hokor's antenna immediately stopped circling, and the yellow light faded until his big eye was perfectly clear. Hokor was a great football coach, but he had little of what the humans called a poker face. Greedock, on the other hand, remained calm and collected. His antenna and pedipalps sat perfectly still, while his own fur, silky black and impeccably groomed, lay smooth and undisturbed. It might have been a casual outing of three business acquaintances, not much different than what went on in the stadium's other luxury boxes, save for the fact that there were probably no other non-humans in the whole stadium, nor were they packed with lethal-looking bodyguards. Four humans, who belonged to Stedmar, and two thickly-muscled, six-foot-tall Quith warriors, their furless, hard-shelled carapaces showing battle scars and the hand-painted emblems of combat tours and various war campaigns. Stedmar smiled even more as the kicker knocked through the extra point to make the score 35-3. to Greedy, I gotta hand it to you on this football team stuff. I had no idea how lucrative this could be, but you were right. I'm moving at least 500 keys of smack every damn road game and coming back with a bus full of money. I never dreamed smuggling could be so easy. I mean, the local customs officials barely look at a team bus. Even the fucking bats don't bother. Greedock noted how Stedmar still referred to the ruling race, the Kretorakians, as bats, a reference to some human animal Greedock had never seen. The Kretorakians introduced football. Football supposedly reduces interspecies violence. They don't want to rock the boat over a little thing like smuggling. Stedmar lifted his glass. Well, here's the interspecies cooperation. He took a drink as the ice cubes rattled wetly. And your Raiders are only a Tier 3 team, the lowest level of football. Imagine how valuable it becomes with a Tier 2 team, and you're moving across entire systems, or even one of the Tier 1 teams, and you've got complete immunity across all governments. Stedmar nodded. Tier 3 is good enough for now. It's going to take me a few years to buy out a Tier 2 team. But hey, if I can hold on to Barnes, I'll be competitive right from the start. Don't be sure Barnes can carry your team. There is a reason that no quarterback from the purest nation has ever led a team to a Tier 2 or Tier 1 championship. It's one thing to be great in an all-human league. It is a very different game when Barnes has to throw past 8-foot-tall Sklono defensive backs and dodge 400-pound Quith Warrior linebackers. Stedmar shrugged. Yeah, the boy thinks he can handle it. The rest of your team can't. Your repressive government barely allows non-human trade, let alone bringing in other races to play football. In Tier 2 ball, you need Quith Warriors, Scalorno, and Key. It would be fun to watch your puny 400-pound lineman try and block a 600-pound Key nose tackle. I'm working on it, my Shamakath. Stedmark did an admirable job of pronouncing the word correctly. No small feat, considering his human vocal cords were only half as versatile as the Quith's voice chamber. It was a clear sign of respect towards the leader of his syndicate. Hokor genuinely liked Stedmar and had big plans for his lieutenant. Assuming, of course, that Stedmar lived to see the end of this game. Football's becoming too popular, even in the purest nation. You know how the holy men are, 
how much they hate the Planetary Union, the League of Planets. It drives the Holy Men crazy to know that those two heretic systems have fielded so many championship teams over the past 25 years. Heretic, is that what you believe? Yeah, how can you ask that? I don't follow the system's damn religion. Greedock pointed to the infinity symbol tattooed on Stedmar's forehead. You seem to have all the trappings of a church member. It's the cost of doing business in this system. If you're not a confirmed member of the church, you can't get near most of the business. Corruption abounds, and it is quite profitable. Greedock let out a rapid click-click-click of disgust. Still, the purest nation is not going to allow non-human races inside its borders, and you need other races to win in the Galactic Football League. Governments have been working on that for three centuries. The GFL has only been around for 23 seasons, and three of those were suspended. Stedmar shrugged again. The bats have been here for 40 years, so obviously there's some tolerance for having alien species and the purest nation system. That's different. They conquered all the human planets. Your people don't have a choice. Yeah, the scriptures also say no non-humans on any purest nation planet, but you know the holy men. When they want something, that book is always full of loopholes. If it wasn't for out-system smuggling, the border colonies couldn't even survive. Our economy's a disaster and everyone knows it. Things are going to change. And soon. You forget that I've been alive three times as long as you. I've always heard about these coming changes in your system, yet it's one fundamentalist coup after another. If it wasn't for the Kretorakians, the purest nation would have torn itself apart long ago. Yeah, well, look at Buddha City. They got every race in the galaxy on that station, and it orbits Allah, the very seat of the purest nation. But that's allowed because the aliens can't set foot on Allah itself. That policy survived through the last three regimes, because even the radicals know the economy can't sustain itself without at least some official out-system trade. You know, there's even talk of allowing a limited non-human presence on outlying food and research facilities, space stations, and, you guessed it, mining colonies. And you think you will still have bonds when that happens? Greedock leaned forward. The football game forgotten. His game. The power game. Now fully underway. Stedmar shrugged. The holy men might not open things for another ten years, but who knows? Besides, I got offers on the table for Barnes' contract. Greedock showed no emotion. He kept his antenna still. But inside, he felt a combination of disappointment and a rush of excitement. Of course the human knew why Greedock had come to this pisswater system. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave, with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleepwave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Greedock turned back to the game. The Corsairs were driving, using their fast-passing game to move forward five or ten yards at a crack. Both teams wore simple uniforms, pants with no stripe, jersey decorated with only the player's number, front and back in block letter style, a helmet decorated with only the first letter of the team name. Every team in the Purest Nation Football League wore uniforms that were identical save for the team colors. The Raiders had silver gray pants and helmets with black jerseys, while the Corsairs wore royal blue pants and helmets with white jerseys. Who would want Barnes? Purest Nation quarterbacks can't handle the upper tiers. It has been proven time and time again. Stedmar's thin smile returned. I'll tell you who wants him. Karani Kolek wants him. This time, Greedock couldn't control his quivering antenna. Karani Kolak, Shamakath of the Key Homeworld Syndicate. The very being that Greedock hoped to someday replace. Kolak. Why would he want Barnes when he's got Frank Zimmer at quarterback? Eh, Zimmer's getting old. He's 33. I know that's not much to you, Shamikath. But for a human, that means he's only got four or five good years left. Barnes is only 19. Kolak figures that by the time Zimmer starts to fade, Barnes will be in his mid-twenties, just hitting the peak of his abilities. Few bosses were as ruthless and clever as Kolak, who was not only a shrewd businessman, but also a great judge of football talent. Kolak's team, the Toe Pirates, had won the GFL championship in 2681 and followed up with a trip to last season's title game, where they lost to the current champions, the Jupiter Jacks. On the field, the Corsairs quarterback dropped back and threw a deep pass. The ball hung in the air for far too long, giving the Raiders strong safety time to come and make a well-timed leap. His outstretched hand snagged the ball before the receiver dragged him down. The crowd roared in approval. Hokor the hook chest, who had remained quiet through most of the game, finally spoke. That is the quarterback's fourth interception. He should be shot. Stedmar laughed at what he thought was a joke, but Greedock knew it was no laughing matter. Hokor was a demanding coach, to say the least. 
And back in his days as a Tier 3 coach in the Quith Planetary League, he had executed more than one ineffectual player. A flock of Kretorakian soldiers flew over the field, moving from perches on one side of the stadium to the other. As their small shadows zipped across the near stands, then the field, then the far stands, the crowd noise fell to a hush. The tiny creatures always made their presence felt during football games, where radicals were fond of deadly terrorist acts. Each one of the twenty or so winged beings carried an entropic rifle, capable of killing a man with even a glancing shot. Like any other public gathering, even ones with only a hundred or so people, the local Kretorakian garrison wanted to see and be seen. I tell you, I hate those little fuckers. They do those flyovers on purpose, you know, to make sure the crowd doesn't get too wild. Over the years, Greedock had seen several wild crowds of repressed purest nation citizens. Just during the drive from the spaceport to the city center in the football field, he'd seen two minor riots and one lynch mob. The lynch mob ended when a flock of soldiers flew in to break it up. Then some purist genius started throwing rocks at the ugly little flying creatures. The lynching originally intended to kill one man for an unknown crime ended in at least 12 deaths as the Kretorakians opened fire. Mining Colony 6, or McCovey, as the locals like to call it, was little more than a barely controlled, overpopulated border outpost of a third world system. The raiders' offense ran onto the field, led by the swaggering Barnes. The crowd noise picked up once again as hometown fans cheered for their star player. He's awfully big for a quarterback. Seven feet even. Seven feet tall, 360 pounds. So big, Greedock thought. Big enough, possibly, to stand up to the punishment that upper-tier quarterbacks took week after week. Frank Zimmer was six foot nine, 310 pounds, and was one of the biggest quarterbacks in the league. It is amazing how players keep getting larger and larger. Fifteen years ago, a human that size could have been a small tight end. Barnes barked out the signals, looking up and down the line as he did. He paused, stood for a moment, and his hands did a butt-a-bap on the center's ass. Barnes screamed out an audible. Behind him, the tailback went in motion to the left, lining up in the slot between the tight end and the wide receiver. Here we go again! The kid sees something! Greedock and Hokor also leaned forward, although they knew what was coming. Any fool could see the Corsair's defensive backs were in man-to-man, while the tailback's motion showed linebackers were in a short zone. Barnes now had three targets to his left, the wide receiver, the tailback, and the tight end. Greedock looked at Hokor. Do you think it is a rollout? Hokor nodded. Barnes took the snap as the line erupted into the dirt-churning mini-war. He ran to his left, down the line, as three left-side receivers sprinted straight downfield. But Hokor and Greedock weren't the only ones to see what Quentin had seen. The much-maligned linebacker tore up the field, blitzing just inside the sprinting tight end. Quentin and the linebacker seemed to be on a collision course. The 360-pound linebacker closed and launched himself, at which point Quentin calmly sidestepped towards the line of scrimmage. The linebacker sailed through the air, not even laying a finger on the deft quarterback. The defensive end separated from his block. Quentin's cut inside the linebacker took him right into the defensive end's reaching arms. Quentin cut back to the outside at the last second as the 400-pound defensive end grabbed him with cannon-sized arms. The quarterback kept his feet pumping and pushed hard with his right arm. 
The end's feet chopped at the ground as he tried to keep up, but Quentin's stiff arm had knocked him off balance. The end fell, both hands wrapped in Quentin's jersey, pulling the smaller quarterback down. Quentin stumbled, leaned, then seemed to take a step towards the defensive end and twisted his shoulders as he pushed out with his right arm yet again. The end fell to the ground, his big hand slipping free of Quentin's jersey. The quarterback popped upright, like a stiff spring that had been bent to the ground, then released. So strong, Greedock thought. I've never seen a human quarterback so strong. Already moving upfield and now free of the clutching defensive end, Quentin tucked the ball and ran. The defense shifted from their pass coverage to come after him, but in the two seconds after his initial cut, he was already ten yards upfield and cutting to the outside. He cut you on, Hokor said quietly, the quiff language equivalent of, oh my. The crowd roared as the cornerback streaked towards Quentin, but the defender came in too fast. Quentin juked to the right, to the inside, but in the same second was moving back to the left. The quarterback stumbled and started to fall. He reached out for Quentin, who slapped his hands away like an angry parent scolding a spoiled child. Ikirapata, Hokor said, a little louder this time. The quiff language equivalent of, that's quite impressive. Quentin sprinted down the sideline. The free safety closed with a good angle of pursuit. There was nowhere to cut this time, so Quentin lowered his right hand and brought it up hard just as the free safety reached for the tackle. Quentin's thick forearm caught the free safety under the chin, lifting him off his feet. The free safety seemed to float for a second, moving downfield at the same speed as Quentin, before crashing into the ground and skidding clumsily across the torn Carsenji grass. Jono Chiri, Hokor said. That loosely translated into, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Stedmar jumped up and down and screamed nonsensical syllables, his drink spilling onto the floor. His bodyguards had lost discipline, straying from their post to get a glimpse of the streaking quarterback. Hokor leaned forward so far, his neon-bright yellow eye pressed against the luxury box's glass windows. It boiled down to Quentin and the strong safety, who closed in as the quarterback passed the 30-yard line. Quentin looked back once, then turned his head upfield and seemed to take off, as if he had booster rockets. Quentin strolled into the end zone for his 52-yard touchdown run. Raiders 41, Corsairs 3. Unlike Hokor, Greedock had managed to keep his cool during the amazing display of athletic talent. Stedma, just how fast is he? Pretty fast. Yesterday in practice, they timed him at a 3-8 in a 40-yard dash. Greedock simply nodded. Of course. Why not? Why shouldn't the 19-year-old huge quarterback with a plasma rifle for an arm, the eyes of an aerial predator, and the mind of a general also run a 3840? That was faster than most human running backs, and definitely faster than the typical 380-pound human tight end. It wasn't nearly as fast as a Sklorna wide receiver or defensive back, but it was about equal with a Quith Warrior linebacker, a Tier 1 linebacker. Quentin would leave most Tier 2 linebackers in the dust. Hokor still leaned forward, his eye and both sets of his hands pressed against the glass, his antennae quivering like drug-addled snakes. Greedock poked him again, hard. 
Hokor looked up and saw Greedock's eye clouding over with just a touch of black. Hokor swept a pedipalp over his head, submissively brushing his antenna back, then sat quietly in his seat. Greedock stared at his coach. Hokor had come across a tape of Barnes and had instantly insisted the boy was Tier 1 material. Greedock had argued, there were reasons that no Nationalite had ever quarterbacked the championship team. Most Nationalite quarterbacks, in fact, washed out within just two seasons. Despite the boy's skills, he had no experience dealing with other races, let alone leading them. There was more to quarterbacking than pure football skill. Far more. But Greedock believed in his coach. He'd already leveraged his entire organization's finances to create the team that Hokor wanted, the team that would make the leap from Tier 2 to the big time, up to Tier 1. Hokor wanted Barnes. But to get Barnes, Greedock needed to make a play that could have serious business consequences. Greedock's wide eye asked an unspoken question. Are you sure? Is this kid really worth it? Hokor stared back with an unspoken answer. Absolutely. I think Golik's going to pay through the nose for this kid. Don't you think he'll pay through the nose, Shamakath? The time had come to formally open up the power game. Greedock wasn't taking any chances. Actually, Stedmar, Barnes might do well on my team. Stedmar raised his eyebrows in a human expression for surprise. Greedock sensed Stedmar's body heat. Very steady, only a hair above normal. Stedmar concealed his emotions very well, which was just one of the reasons Greedock liked him. Stedmar was also smart and ruthless. But for all his strong points, he should have known better than to play the game with Greedock the Splithead. You've got Don Pine at quarterback. Why would you want anybody other than Don Pine? Donald Pine is not what he used to be. Stedmar nodded. Well, that may be true, but I've already got a considerable offer from Kirani Kolak. You should just give me Barnes's contract as tribute. Stedmar smiled. Now, come on. We both know tribute doesn't cover something like this. You wouldn't want me in your organization if I do something as stupid as give Quentin Barnes up for free. Greedock thought for a second then nodded. Stedmar played it smart, polite, respectful, logical. And what is Kolak's offer? Stedmar walked to the bar and poured himself another drink. Well, you know, Barnes's contract is negligible. I have him signed for another year at one million credits. Such a low number for such talent, Greedock thought. That is impressive, Stedmar. Barnes is worth three times that amount, even for a tier three team. How did you manage it? Stedmar shrugged and smiled. Well, technically, I don't have to pay him at all. He's an orphan, like about a million other nationalite kids his age. Pogroms, coups, fundamentalist revolutions, power struggles. Thousands of people die or just disappear every year. Quentin never even knew his parents. They disappeared when he was one, maybe even younger. He had a brother. They hung him for stealing food when Quentin was only five. That's all the family he ever had. And how old was his brother when they hung him? Um, uh, nine or ten. Quentin doesn't remember for sure. Anyway, in the purest nation, family members are responsible for crimes committed by other family members, up to three generations. So Quentin was the only one left in the family, 
They put him to work in the forced labor mines. A five-year-old human child working in the McCovey mines? Stedmar nodded. Happens all the time. Makes for a very cheap labor source. Slave labor is always the cheapest. The nice term is honor worker, as in working in the forced labor camps clears your family honor, you know? Only takes 20 years. Greedock's antenna circled slowly. He didn't like human systems to start with, and the purest nation was by far the worst of the lot. So if he was an honor worker in a mine, how did you discover him? Stedmar laughed. It was the craziest thing. I was driving out to the mines to conduct some business. So I'm driving by in my limo when the workers are on a break. There's a crowd built up, like it's a fight, you know? Well, I love to watch a good fight, especially on this planet. Did you know if you kill a man in a fair fight here, you don't go to jail? Why am I not surprised? Anyway, so people really go at it. So I pull up to see what's going on, only there's not a fight. Everyone's laughing and clapping, looking at each other in amazement. There's this giant-sized fucker, must have been 425 pounds, bit like an air tank with legs, you know? Anyway, this guy looks pissed. He heaves back and he chucks a rock. Maybe rock is a pound or two. Chucks it about 60 yards. Really impressive throw. Some guy runs the rock back, and that's when the workers start flashing money back and forth. You know, they're making bets. Then this scrawny kid steps up. He's about six feet tall, but you can tell he's real young. The big guy. He's got this look on his face like he could eat a bad hole. Entropic rifle and all, you know? He's looking at this kid like he wants to kill him. And the kid, oh, he's just laughing. The kid takes the rock, pretends he's lining up under center, and actually barks out some signals. He's looking left, he's looking right. Then he takes a fucking five-step drop like he's quarterback in the Rodina astronauts or something. And he heaves that rock. I mean, the thing flew 85, maybe 90 yards. I just about shit myself. Greedock nodded. He was always amazed by humans' fascination with fecal euphemisms. And that's why you signed him? Well, partially. So the kid won the bet, obviously. The big guy hands him a wad of bills, and the kid starts doing this dance, really rubbing it in, you know? Well, the big guy, he just loses his shit. He throws a sucker punch that knocks the kid flat on his ass. And the kid popped up like nothing happened at all. Except he's not laughing now. Now he's pissed. Greedock nodded again. Urine was also a key element of Stedmar's stories. So the big guy comes out to this kid, and this kid lays into him. I mean, he took that big guy apart. Three straight jabs and then a big left hook, and the guy goes down. But the kid isn't finished. He jumps on the guy and starts blasting him with big shit-kicker lefts over and over again. There's blood all over the dirt. In a couple of seconds, the guy's face looks like hamburger. The workers are laughing and having a great old time, but you know what I'm thinking of myself, Shamacath? No, Stedma. What were you thinking? I'm thinking, what if that kid hurts his hands? Swear to high one, that's what I'm thinking. So I send my boys Sammy and Dean and Frankie over there to pull the kid off. But he's like a wildcat. He doesn't know who my boys are or what they want. So he lays Sammy out with that same left hook. Stedmart turned to look at one of his bodyguards. A thick human with a nose that looked as if it had been broken a dozen times. You remember that punch, Sammy? Yeah, boss. And he weighed about 200 pounds less back then. Well, I didn't want the kid hurt. But you can't expect the boys to take shit like that, you know? But the more they hit him, the madder he gets, and he just won't stay down. Finally, Sammy gets up, and he whips out a stun stick and puts the kid out. They drag him over to me. I ask the kid if he knows who I am. You know what he says to me? No, Stedma. What does he say to you? Greedock patiently waited for the end of the story. 
humans always took so long to get to the point. Through a split lip, the kid says to me, you're the new owner of the Raiders. Not, you're Stedmore Osborne, notorious gangster. Or, you're that guy that shakes down the mine owners or anything like that. Just, the owner of the Raiders. That was it for me. I knew the kid lived and breathed football. So I ask him, how old are you? And he tells me, 15. 15. <laughs> you know what I almost did? You almost shit yourself? Yeah, I almost shit myself. I pay off the kid's family debt. That's why, technically, you know, I don't have to pay him at all. I sort of own him. And just to let you know, a million a year is probably more than his entire family saw going back three generations, if not four or five. He thinks he's fucking rich. So I signed the kid and I put him on the team. He's never played organized football before. And the next goddamn year, at 16 years old, he's the second string quarterback. At this, Hokor looked away from the field and listened attentively. Greedock knew why. This quarterback already had four years of professional experience, albeit a lowly PNFL. At 17, he starts for me. We went 5-4 and four that year, and he won his last three games. The next year, this 18-year-old kid wins it all for me, 9-0, and oh, and two more wins in the playoffs to give me my first championship. This year, we're 9-0 and oh again. We'll obviously win today. That's 21 games in a row for the kid. Next week, the championship game should be a fucking cakewalk. And all because you were driving by and happened to see him throw a rock. Stedmar laughed. He obviously relished telling the story. Yeah, it's crazy shit, isn't it? You still haven't told me what Kolak offered for the boy. Kolak will hand me 15 million. Stedmar had that same self-confident smile on his lips. Plus smuggling rights for any Piuli he wants to unload in Purist Nation's space. Greedock nodded, sensing Stedmar's body heat increase just a bit. He was lying about the 15 million, but not about the key-grown narcotic Piuli, of which some humans just couldn't get enough. A year's worth of the rights to that stuff was worth far more than 15 million. But McCovey belonged to Greedock. Well, most of it anyway. Was this Kolak's first move into Greedock's territory? Was Stedmar to be trusted? You should never take a deal with another syndicate without consulting me. Stedmar ran his left hand over his head, brushing his hair back. While he obviously had no antenna, the motion perfectly mimicked the quith sign of fealty. Greedock felt his anger subside a little, an involuntary, instinctive reaction to the gesture. His lieutenant was very good at this game. Greedock would never again underestimate Stedmar Osborne. But I haven't taken the deal, Shamaketh. Nor would I ever do so without your blessing. I will give you ten million for Barnes' contract. Plus, I'll give you Mohammed Jorgensen's territory on Allah. Stedmar's face wrinkled. I suspect you were going to give me Mohammed's territory anyway. He's getting run over by the Giovanni Syndicate. They want to expand their purest nation territory in a bad way. Greedock nodded again. Stedmar was correct. And yet, the offer had been placed on the table. To change it now was a sign of weakness, and any Shamakath could not admit weakness in front of his vassals. Stedmar had made his first mistake. Instead of simply trying to add to the deal, he insinuated that Greedock's offer was no good. I have offered you a deal. Greedock's antenna pinned down flat against the back of his head, like a dog's ears just before an attack. 
You will now accept. Stedmar's eyes widened slightly when he saw the antenna go back, and his temperature skipped almost a full degree. He quickly glanced at Greedock's two bodyguards, who showed no sign of emotion. Where Quith leaders are small and slight, Quith warriors were so much larger they looked like a different species altogether. They shared the same body style of two legs, two arms with three pincher hands, and two pedipalps on either side of the vertical mouth. But while a leader's pedipalps were two feet long and slender, a warrior's were usually about three feet long, thick with muscle, and heavily armored. Warriors did not have silky fur. Instead, thick chitin covered their bodies. The last difference was perhaps the most pronounced. A leader's softball-sized eye glowed like a window to the soul's emotions, while the warrior's cold eye was smaller, like a baseball, surrounded by a heavy ridge of chitin and hooded by a thick, tough, leathery eyelid. Crazy red and orange designs, the marks of the Quith Commandos, decorated the bodyguard's upper carapaces. Warriors wore pants, usually gray and devoid of any color, but rarely wore anything that would cover their enameled markings. Stedmar's bodyguards, four densely muscled 400-pound humans, tensed up, ready for action. Shamaketh, please understand. With all due respect, Kolok's deal is better. It's just bad business not to take it. You will take my offer, Stedmar, and you'll take it now. Perhaps we could add some money to the offer and- There will be no changes to the offer. Stedmar's eyes narrowed. He looked down at the diminutive Quith leader. Shamaketh, I respectfully invoke my right to decline Kolok's offer. Therefore, I'm not obligated to take your offer. Barnes will play for me next season. Greedock's antenna rose slightly. Stedmar had quickly taken his only way out. By keeping Barnes and not selling his contract to anyone, Stedmar could turn down Greedock's offer without Greedock losing face. But proper etiquette or no, Greedock wanted Barnes. And that was all that mattered. Greedock clapped his pincers together and gestured to one of his bodyguards, who walked over as he reached into his belt. The human bodyguards immediately reached for their weapons, but Stedmar held up a hand to still them. Virek, show Stedmar the screen. The 375-pound Virek the Mean struck a rather imposing figure, but Stedmar never flinched. Despite the fact that everyone in the room knew Virak could kill Stedmar in the blink of an eye, the burly bodyguard looked at the human and brushed back his one set of retractable antenna, just before doing the same in front of Greedock. He then produced a small holo projector from his belt and switched it on. The image flared to life. A dangerous stillness filled the luxury box. Stedmar looked at the image, eyes widening with rage. He glanced down into the stands, to the first row, then back again. Greedock sensed the skyrocketing stress level of the human bodyguards. They reached for their weapons again, but Stedmar's curtly raised hand stopped them for the second time. The holo screen showed a smiling, blonde human woman holding a baby, both warmly dressed against the evening's cold. They sat in the stadium's front row, the woman laughing with two other human women, all of them surrounded by alert bodyguards. 
The image shook slightly, obviously due to a long-range focus. Your mate and your offspring. Stedmar swallowed. Where is this picture coming from? From the scope of a pulse cannon, manned by a sniper sitting in one of the atmosphere processors overlooking the stadium. Stedmar looked across the field, up to the skyline, at the endless line of atmosphere processors that towered 30 stories high. The big machines were filled with platforms, grates, pipes, blocky compressors. There were a hundred places a sniper could hide unseen. I'm sure you're thinking you can kill me now and save your mate and offspring. But if the sniper doesn't hear from me in the next five minutes, he'll fire. The pulse cannon will incinerate that entire section, killing everyone in a 20-yard radius. So I suggest no sudden moves on her part. If she should rise to relieve herself, for example, she'll be the epicenter of a rather large crater. Stedmar looked at one of his bodyguards. Frankie, call down to Stefan. Tell him to make sure everybody stays put, especially Michelle. As I said, the deal is tendered. You will now take it. Stedmar nodded, his face a narrow-eyed visage of barely controlled rage. That disappointed Greedock. Stedmar would have to improve his self-control if he wanted to move even farther up that syndicate's hierarchy. Virek produced a contract box and handed it to Stedmar. The human read through the contract, nodded, then placed his thumb in the slot on one end. Greedock placed his middle left pincer in the box's other slot. The machine quickly recorded their genetic makeup, linked to the intergalactic business database, verified their identities, then gave a low beep to indicate the transaction had been recorded. Greedock's antenna rose to their normal angle. Very good, Stedmar. I will now take my leave. Shall I remove Muhammad for you? I'll take care of it. Greedock nodded, then left the luxury box, Hokor and his two bodyguards close behind. You have been listening to The Rookie, book one of the Galactic Football League series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on the author and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon, superweaponband.com. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.